Welcome to episode 6 of Shortcast of a Coffee. Peter Roebuck once wrote so beautifully in an article, quote, Once on a train from Shimla to Kalka, there was a halt in one of the stations. The train stopped for a few minutes as usual. Sachin was nearing his century, batting on 98. The passengers, railway officials, everyone on the train waited for Sachin to complete the century. This genius can stop time in India, stop good. Our guest today is nothing short of a modern day robuck when it comes to cricket writing. Jared Kimber has probably done everything in the field of cricket journalism from being a blogger to a documentary filmmaker and now a YouTuber. His channel features some of the best cricket analysis you will ever find on the internet. His wacky sense of humor and out of the box innovative content make him an absolute favorite. In this episode We talked to him about the interesting history of Crickinfo, challenges he faced during the making of the documentary Death of a Gentleman and more. He is easily one of the most respected names in cricket broadcasting. I will link all of Jared's online content in the show notes and without further ado let's move to the episode. Thank you Jared for joining the podcast. Um first of all let me start off by saying how jealous I am of you. You earn a living from cricket. I have always loved that sport and still do uh, especially test match cricket do you think that's the biggest joy of your life uh no i think my family's probably the biggest joy of my life um i like to sleep in as well um so i suppose that's on a fairly uh similar uh level um from those sorts of things um look i always wanted to be a writer i didn't necessarily start out trying to be a cricket writer so i wouldn't say that earning a living from cricket is the biggest joy of my life. Uh I would say earning a living from writing and creating things is probably a very very high up there for me. Okay. Yeah, I see you went to college to be an ad filmmaker or just a filmmaker in general. Uh yeah. how did you I mean I still remember it was around the time the 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 infamous Sydney test match or the controversial Sydney test match of 2008 when you know your blog just went viral. Um how did how did the whole transition from being a filmmaker to a writer or did you always love like writing no i was always a writer i i wasn't trying to become a well i would have liked to have directed my own films probably more the documentaries um i don't know if i have the 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 greatest skills to direct um other films although i directed music videos and short films and things like that um but i wanted to write well specifically uh tv shows and um feature films was the thing that i always wanted to write so uh i was on that path and we had our own film production company uh and you know just on a whim i started writing about um cricket after a conversation with a friend of mine who's a basketball writer uh shout out to Todd Spear if you want to uh, re- read any of his books uh Pete Maravich's book is very good but and uh, not Pete Maravich he didn't write that he wrote Drazen Petrovic's book he's obsessed with Pete Maravich so. um uh, and uh and yeah he was um you know we just had a conversation and I started writing about cricket as almost like a way of making money really I suppose as much as anything we we had the film production company we weren't making a lot of money we knew there was a lot of money in in blog advertising at that point and uh I started writing about it and very soon after that it went um uh, it kind of all went nuts around me it wasn't on purpose or anything like that I was still very much I was I wasn't like I started writing about cricket and then thought to myself oh I'll be a cricket writer 
I wrote about cricket and thought I might write some cricket blogs and, you know, maybe there's a secondary income for me or, or anything else. But I wasn't thinking that that was going to be the path. But quite early on, it was very clear that what I was doing, no one else had ever done before. Um, and I think because of that, uh, things change very, very quickly. Yeah, I think 2007, 2008 was the time when blogging was at its peak. Mm. So then you moved to uh, Crick Info. Was that soon after or? No, I moved to England. Um, uh, there was an editor, uh, well, the deputy editor of the Wisdom Cricket. I forgot the name, but I should know. It changed names <laughs> about eight times um, and was merged with different magazines. So it's very confusing. But um, yeah, they, uh, Wisdom Cricketer, that was it. Yeah. Uh, their deputy editor, he was the one who said I should move over. And the filmmaking stuff had slowed down, although I'm sure if I'd stayed there, I, I would have got some more work over there. But it had certainly slowed down. And he um, he said, look, I can't promise you a career. We can't pay you a lot of money. But if you come over, you will probably get a lot of work just because no one's ever done this before. So I came over in 2008. Um, and just freelanced around for a little bit and did some stuff for you know all sorts of different websites websites that no longer exist and uh, websites that paid me a lot of money for work i shouldn't have been paid a lot of money for and websites who paid no money uh, when i should have got paid a lot and um but the advertising on the cricket blog was pretty much the major thing we had so many um readers that you know everyone in the world wanted to advertise on our site and so for about two or three years that's basically what i did and from there you kind of get sucked into the mainstream and that's how i eventually ended up at crick info okay yeah i mean it was so surprising to see that crick info is actually one of the very first websites yeah i mean not just cricket but like very ever first websites it, it's yeah well i mean it starts you know the, the whole cricket thing is really interesting the way that it was involved in the birth of the internet. And I don't think cricket fans know enough about this story, but essentially, you know, you had a lot of Australian, Indian, English, New Zealand, West Indian people who were studying in America. The internet is exploding in America. Um, and so if you're, if you're a basketball fan in America, you don't need to get your, your scores off the internet. Right. But if you're a cricket fan in America, that's the only place you're going to get these scores. And they did all sorts of things that those early guys, the absolute pioneers of, you know, uh, getting the international newspapers um, and scouring for scorecards. And, um, you know, one of my favorite stories is they they got they had a West Indian uh, uh, guy who who was studying in, I think, Oxford, certainly mm -hmm. one of the bigger universities in the UK. And they sent him a radio Walkman to play the cricket and he would broadcast it from England back to America you know, breaking all the sort of uh, piracy rules. And then they would do live ball by ball commentary from the radio commentary um, online. Like, and this is in, uh, I want to say 94, 95. Yeah, 93 is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 93 is kind of when it all starts and they, they get very, very, they get very good at recruiting people and very good at finding ways to get cricket information very quickly. And then by 90. Six, they're one of the world's biggest websites. By 97, you know, they have the situation where they are, you know, Mick Jagger puts money in and they, they do the first, as far as we're aware, the first ever sports broadcast of, um, online of, is cricket. I'm um, certainly at a major level, a professional level. Um, and, uh, you know, Crick Info is, a, it's, a, it's a website that, it's now seen as sort of an old man website and it's seen as a, like a homepage website and, you know, this this big behemoth of cricket. But it's worth remembering that it wasn't started by Disney or a billionaire or anything yeah. else. It was started by cricket fans who 
um, who all came together because they simply wanted to know more about the sport um, or just wanted to know the scores in some cases. And so it's incredible the way that it has managed to um, develop since then. I think it, it was also all of their first ever entrepreneurship venture. They probably never expected it to be like an entrepreneur venture. Yeah, and they were terrible the... entrepreneurs. Um, <laughs> they all, Almost all of them learned to be good entrepreneurs from Crickinfo rather than the other way around. So they owned 75% of Crickinfo, which was valued at 120 million, I think. Okay. So they owned 75% of that and they ran it so poorly that they ended up selling it for a dollar. Their 75%, which is now worth, I would say that ESPN wouldn't sell Crick Info for under one point. Well, I, th I think they, I think it's worth around one billion dollars now as a website. It has forty million active users, and it might be more than that. I haven't, I haven't checked in with them for a while. Forty million active users, but the big thing with Crick Info is not just the active users; it's how long people stay on the site. So even Crick Buzz is bigger. Crickbuzz has more fans, but is worth less money. And part of the reason is that the audience for Crickinfo is outside of India, not just India itself. But the other reason is that people on Crickbuzz flick on to the get a score and then flick off again. Crickinfo people still spend ages on that website, mostly for the for the live ball by ball commentary, but also for other things as well. And so it's just a huge, huge uh, venture. And those guys, you know, they went on to have very successful. A lot of them went on to have very successful careers. You know, one of the guys um, that did Cricket Archive, uh, which is, you know, probably still the, the second best place to get uh, scores outside of Crick Info and has a lot more scores that Crick Info doesn't have. Uh, you've obviously got um, someone who was in, who was arrested recently uh, in India, who, you know, is one of the biggest uh, Chennai publishers of, of books. Um, you know, you had the guy who founded it, who's, you know, uh, Nigella Lawson's cousin, uh, who, you know, he's had two or three successful businesses since then. And a lot of other guys who are successful in business literally used the fact that they were co-founders of Crick Info to get a lot of jobs. And there are a lot of other people out there looking at them going, they did nothing for Crick Info, right? Yeah. There's all this pettiness within it. But it tells you how much it was such a big thing um, that, you know, being being involved with that allowed you to get so many uh, feet in the doors with other things. And, you know, it's in the UK, most cricket fans follow um, BBC cricket, right? But when you go to uh, when, every year, they do an audit of the, the the government employees and every year, one of the top five most used websites of government employees in the UK is Crick Info. Right. So it shows and, you know, I think in in Bangladesh, it was like for a long time, it was the second or third biggest website. You know, it's got all these little pockets around the world. And, and you notice it as a writer when you don't work for them anymore, just you write a really good article and you might get three or four people tweet about it. Whereas before you might get, you know, four, 500 people tweet about it. The impact of, of being on a site like that is massive. Yeah, I still remember uh, 2010, 2011, uh, you know, I had just, uh, I was in college around that time, you know, people would actually prefer to go to Crick Info than watch the match live or even sometimes uh, listen to the radio um, because the way they wrote the ball by ball commentary, it was like so visual. I think that was one of the biggest USBs of, of Crick Info. I mean, I myself, while preparing for uh, the GRE examination, so there is an English section where you need to be really, you need to have a good vocabulary. And I used Crick Info 
to to get better at it because the way I did it is I would write the word and then I would say cite Crick Info so that I would read an article that would have that word. That way I can relate the word with a story. And then mm. that really helped me. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's, you know, the, the ball by ball people are probably the ones who don't get enough credit. I think, you know, Andrew Miller, um, you know, as as a person who believed in the ball by ball. And you got to remember, Andrew Miller is quite a late, you know, convert to Crick Info. And, uh, you know, with all due respect to Andrew Miller, I don't think he's going to go down as one of the greatest cricket writers of all time. Um, you know, he's done a lot of work with editing. He's edited Crick Info and some of the other magazines as well. But I don't think he's going to go down as like a top 10 guy of writers. But when you factor in his ball by ball, it would be hard to argue that he hasn't had a bigger impact than a lot of other people who might be on that list. And the amount of people that have read his words compared to the amount of people who've read, I don't know, Gideon Haig or Peter Roebuck or, you know, uh, you know, a, a Robinson or Cardiff, chances are more people have read Miller. Right. And, 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 you know, and the ability to do that on the fly and that creativity, and it's not just him, there are heaps of them um, out there. It's, it's really, really, it, it's quite fascinating to see, um, you know, the, what is one of the more simplest things at Crick Info be actually still the most uh, captivating all these years later. Uh, do you think uh, sports writing is a dying art? Uh, well, I can't, I, I can't, answer that for other people but i mean i still write all my content right like I, I know there are people who don't there are some really good content creators that i follow who clearly speak their way through stuff right and and you know obviously there's that sort of famous american re sports radio style um and english sports radio style of you know I've, I've got these four points and i'm going to make them over the space of an hour and i'm going to space them out and i'm going to be as entertaining as possible um, and those people who have that skill probably do quite well in the podcast age, the, you know, TikTok age and everything else. But, you know, the, the most exciting sports content that I follow is generally still the stuff that has a long, uh, a, you know, either story or history or data or whatever, but it all comes from a writing perspective. I, I, I maybe cause I am a filmmaker and I come from this from a different area, but it's like, we still we are still at an age where people read right and for all the talk we if you go back throughout the history the amount of times that they said the books would die books don't die they still exist and i think we're at a similar point in now in sports writing we're like oh why would you do that when this guy could say this in TikTok and this guy could do a podcast and everything else you know writing still matters and um i think things have changed but also i think uh, i said this years ago that i think one of the worst things to happen to sports writing in the UK, but you could also throw cricket in because I think cricket is an offshoot of sports writing in the UK, was um, The Guardian. So The Guardian from 1970s to, I don't know, 2005, 2010, had these incredible writers and they wrote in this sort of literary style, right? And if you go back, it's even further than that, but I think that's the bit where it sort of takes over. It's sort of flowery English style. And the writing is quite often beautiful. The sports part of it is shit. They don't tell you anything about any of the games. They're, they're so fascinated with their own sentence structure that you're like, you go back and you read old reports from some of these guys and you're like, were you at the game? Like, what the fuck were you watching? Right? And I remember having this conversation with The Guardian. It's probably why I don't work for The Guardian. The Guardian had an interview with me during lockdown and I think they were very interested in, in writing for me and I said, in me writing for them. 
And I basically had this whole interview where I was just like, okay, but if we're going to do it, I'm not going to do it the way that you guys do it. It needs to move forward. You guys haven't moved forward with the times in years. You guys basically set the template and then didn't do anything with it. And I said, I read your articles and it's just fucking pointless bullshit. If you're going to write about sport, let's write about sport. We could still be literary. We could still write visually. We could still be engaging and interesting. But where are your good videos? Where are your good podcasts? Where are your where are your data led pieces, right? The the Guardian's supposed to be the the England left wing leaning thing that looks for facts, and their writing is just editorial comment pieces by brilliant writers. These guys, it's I've talked to these guys about it. They understand that, and I think that for me, if that means that it has to be bloggers, and that was the first generation that came through. The second generation is the social media people and the podcasters that will come through and the YouTube is probably just that other generation as well. If that means that those people come through and make sports writing better, I don't care if they don't write the article. I care that it exists and they're telling me something I don't know and they're still telling great stories and they're still being beautiful with the way they present their information. That is what sports writing should be. And I really think that sports writing became and, and look i'm a, i'm an accidental outsider in all of this but i really do believe that the reason i have a career is because sports writing was so shit when i came into cricket right and um that's not to say that i wouldn't have eventually been successful in some way or another as a writer because clearly i have an engaging way of telling stories and you know i do some things right but i honestly believe that sports writing was just terrible and so if forcing people to think about it more visually because they have to do TikToks or youtube helps their sports writing then that's a great thing and it will mean the democratization of sports writing has also meant that you now have these like niche topics covered in a way before of like you know england had all these newspapers and india had all these newspapers right and you, you go and read their reports and it's the same shit over and over again it's either local biased crap or it's it's opinion with very little um research or facts going into it you can't do those articles anymore because if you do the internet will pick you apart. So I, I don't. I I do think that the information. I think if you if you're a basketball fan or a football fan, you know, and cricket's starting to get there, but you go and you find Tifo Sport or you know you find Thinking Basketball. You cannot tell me that just because these guys are not writing these articles out all the time that they are not far better than most of the drivel that is actually written out. Okay. Yeah, can you give me an example of niche topics that are being covered these days that usually papers in the UK and India were not covering? So, so when we did the movie Death of a Gentleman, John Etheridge of the Sun, who's a friend of mine, was on Sky Sports, and my movie came up, and he said I was told to write about um, men in boots, not men in suits. Right now, if you're a sports writer now and you don't have an eye on advertising marketing business politics whatever <laughs> you better be really good at what you do because you know people want to know which random saudi prince owns which english football club right people want to know what the americans are doing with you know a premier league team right people want to know what is you know what owners of of indian cricket are buying franchises in south africa right so there are now people whose job it is to specifically write about sports business and sports politics and you know sports marketing you're starting to see all these different things that didn't even exist before all these things have always existed in sports 
and no one wrote about them. And sometimes they are far more fascinating. And sometimes they are the main story. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes the person out on the field is the most important thing. But having the ability to do all those sorts of things shows you how far we have come so quickly. There, There's a whole market in America which hasn't come over to Europe so much, and certainly I haven't seen it in cricket, which is people writing about the media, right? So ESPN just had a massive amount of layoffs, right? And there are all these media, sports media experts that I can listen to about why ESPN have laid off these people and what that means. The Athletic, um, the Athletic has just, um, you know, and the New York Times coming together. Again, I can listen to really informed people who know heaps about the media and specifically sports media talk about New York Times buying The Athletic, right? Who's writing about Crick Info? Who's running about CrickBuzz? CrickBuzz literally became the most used cricket website in the world. Find me all the articles on it. Exactly. Right? I, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to touch on CrickInfo. I mean, nobody has ever written an article about CrickInfo from what I what I. Well, know. there was a lot around the 20-year anniversary. There was a lot okay. that went on then. Sid V did the history. I made a documentary for ESPN on the history of Crick Info, which they refused to show. Uh, didn't fit exactly maybe what they wanted to show. Um, I thought it was a really good documentary. I put a lot of time and effort into it and uh, interviewed all the original guys. But yeah, there's not a lot on Crick Info. There's nothing on Crick Buzz. Um, we just had an incredible scandal in cricket media, which is We Cricket. Have you ever heard of We Cricket? Yes, yes, yes. It's a very yeah. archaic looking website from the 90s. I think no, it's... no, not that we cricket. Although that that is fun as well. So there's a but a couple of guys uh, that had a YouTube channel uh, called We Cricket, and I think they got to like four hundred. Oh, are these the two guys who play cricket in their backyard? Exactly. Oh, I love them. I love them. Right. <laughs> well, they just split up. Oh, that's so unfortunate. Right? I and oh. we don't know why they split up. Okay. There are lots of rumors, but no one knows why. No one has done an investigation into it. They were the two, outside of Akash and Shoah Bakhtar, right? these are the two most famous YouTube people in cricket, right? And they, in the middle of their fame, one of them has disappeared, right? Oh. And no, there is no one who covers cricket media to even follow up on this, right? Dilip Premachandran, you know, who, who was forced out of cricket because of, um, uh, I was going to say sexual harassment. I don't even know if it was sexual harassment, but pretending to be a woman and try and get young girls who wanted to work in the media to send him photos or whatever the weird story was. Where There were very few articles about that. Ed Smith plagiarized on and plagiarized on Crick Info, right? And Andrew Strauss hired Ed Smith as the chief selector and didn't know that Ed Smith had done this. Why? Because there's no coverage of any of these things, right? There are stories about the, the ECB just um, basically sold the BBC rights um, to, um, uh, sorry, you sold the radio rights to the BBC, despite the fact that there was Rupert Murdoch's company were begging for cricket, right? And it's an open joke within the BBC that, that the ECB didn't even go to Rupert Murdoch's uh, people, despite the fact that they knew that they wanted it, right? You're talking about marketing the game, everything else. Look at the amount of times that these cricket boards um, sign rights deals, right? And no one investigates them, right? No one looks into them. There's tons of the Cricket Australia did perhaps the worst TV rights deal I've ever seen, where they had the chance of having all cricket on free-to-air TV and making almost exactly the same amount of money or splitting it up and going with two different companies, one free-to-air and one cable, right? And they chose 
the one that put cricket on cable TV, right? That actually didn't pay them any more money. And the rumors around that, if you're a good, if you're a good journalist, are incredible, right? No one writes about these. We're talking about billion dollar deals in some cases. We're talking about the future of cricket in some other cases, right? What the whole story behind what happened with Cricket South Africa when they came up with their Premier League that never even existed, right? Who got the rights? They literally all we know is like the smallest amount of this. There's so much of it, right? You look at the rest of sports, they're starting to catch up with this. You have these people who write about all these sorts of things. Uh, cricket is slowly getting there, and it's certainly a lot better than it ever was before. But it's not—it's um, not at that level at the moment. And so, what the internet is allowed for is someone like Peter Delapena, who's a USA cricket writer, to exist. He's not existing 20 years ago. It wouldn't—it wouldn't have worked. Tim Wigmore built his career on writing about um, associate cricket politics, which is a bizarre thing to say that he now, you know. He writes, um, now he writes books that have like a cricket sporting American crossover. But back in those days, that's how he got his name, right? You know, Freddie Wilde was, why did Freddie, why is Freddie Wilde the current analyst of the England team? Because he wrote T20 analysis pieces because no one else was actually analyzing the most important part of, of the, the this new format of the game. These are all people that wouldn't exist without the internet. Right. And and I'm a perfect example of that as well. And so it has opened up, but there's still a lot more to do. Yeah, that that brings me the, to the question, you know, with these press conferences, post-match press, press conferences, how difficult is it for an independent writer or a YouTube creator to 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 break into that space, to be in that in the same room where a Rohit Sharma or a Virat Kohli speaks about their match? I think if that's what you're trying to do, you've already thought about this wrong. Okay. Right? Because if you don't want to be in the space where Rohit Sharma is talking to 45 other people, he's not going to tell you anything independent. What, what are you going to get out of that? While the 45 journalists are off listening to Rohit Sharma, what can you find out? What can you learn? What content can you do while they're in there scribbling on their notepads or, or waiting, for, waiting to transcribe their dictaphones? Right? Right. So I just don't think that you should be looking at it from that perspective if you're a... Um, a burgeoning sports journalist. And and I think that comes back to everything I just said about, you know, Peter Delapena, Wigmore, um, you can throw Lizzie Ammon in there. Uh, who else did I have in there? Freddie Wild. We cricket guys, the dealt with cricket guys, the grade cricketer guys, all these different groups. Is what what most of those do is found something that is different. And if you really want to do something, you're much better off doing something that is different and doing it well that builds an audience than you ever are. The amount of times I would read blogs by people. They, oh, I have to read my cricket blog. And I'd read their blog and I'd be like, okay, you've written a match report of a game that I have already read seven match reports of. What different do you bring to the table, right? Yeah. And that's the big thing that I teach with, you know, people who want to get into this space is what is not being covered that could be covered, right? What is, what is something that is fundamental to this sport and for whatever reason, no one has got around to it. Right. What is interesting to a whole generation of, of fans out there, but they've never had someone actually cover it for them. Right. And you start to see these things coming through and, it, you know, you, you see these women fanzines coming through, you know, and women's cricket stuff coming through. Right. Of the, none. I don't think any of the people that have created these websites will become millionaires, but a lot of them are now working in main, mainstream cricket and they started writing basically for no one. Right. Whereas uh, so many of these other guys, they 
uh, they'll write a, blog, a great blog piece about the Indian cricket. I'm like, great. Well, you know, the Indian men's team has 48,000 words written for every one second of cricket that is played, right? You have to be spectacular to break through there. You don't have to be spectacular to break through in women's cricket because you're not fighting nearly as many people. You don't have to be as spectacular in breaking through in writing about franchise cricket because there's almost nothing written about franchise cricket, right? Where's the, where's the great YouTube page on wicket keeping, right? There's so many things that are not covered that if you look at football uh, and you look at American sports, they're just so much better at covering. You can't tell me that there isn't something that you as a young writer are not interested in, right? That isn't free for you to be the expert in within the space of six months, right? Tim Wigmore went from literally, you know, a kid trying to get work to being the preeminent expert on associate cricket politics and, and cricket politics in general in the shortest amount of time possible. I became the leader in global cricket politics about a month into writing my, uh, you know, writing the first draft of our movie, right? There are so many open topics out there. And if you're thinking that you have to get into a press box, you don't. I didn't get into a press box for the first, what, year, year and a half. And, you know, it's handy. And I do analysis. You want to be in the press box. And if you want to break news, you need to be around people and and, and build, in, in uh, you know, um, contacts with people uh you know there are certain you know you meet other writers you meet other editors you meet people who might want to hire you it's all very handy but that should not be the end goal uh if if you're in a press box it basically means that someone is paying your bill to be in the press box that's all it really means right 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 how did you move from being a writer to an analyst because i see i watch your youtube videos and i see you have so much data and like statistics uh do you have a separate software team that does that or like a statistics team or are you I'm trying to build a statistics team at the moment but no it's still very slow going on on that front um no i i mean i'm in a situation at the moment where i have um i have access to a lot of different databases out there and you know a lot of a, doc, a lot of different systems and you know uh i've built some of my own stuff as well uh, you know we're trying to in the future build more and more of our own stuff but i it all came back to t20 cricket i just I wrote a piece that said it wasn't written about properly and my editor called me out on it and said, well, why don't you write about it properly? Um, weirdly enough, I'd done the same thing with women's cricket earlier and he showed no interest, but with T20 cricket, maybe he saw there was more money coming, but um, that was all it was. And so I just had to go out there and work out how to tell the story better. And I'm a big basketball fan. So a lot of that stuff comes from, you know, um, uh, you know, following basketball and, and, you know, basketball was probably, 2012 wasn't it so yeah basketball was probably about five years advanced on cricket so it was a really good time to be following basketball because basketball fans were just learning about all these advanced metrics themselves right and you know the last couple of years have been huge with you know the joker winning mvp and people going back against advanced metrics and then other people going well actually the advanced metrics are right he is clearly the best basketball player on the planet and maybe you should have listened to them we haven't got anywhere near that with cricket at the moment but having that last 10 years of watching what happened with basketball um was really handy obviously baseball was another one and, and i you know i knew a little bit about football so i read up on football as well but it was certainly uh, basketball was the thing that opened it up for me which probably made it easier for me to understand it than it did for a standard cricket writer um uh 
because they may not have a sport that had already gone through that revolution at the same time that they understood well enough to be able to to be able to go so yeah i just i started doing that and from the moment you start doing that especially on a site like quick info like you know put it this way the analysis i write now is better now than anything i ever did on quick info but quick info stuff got me st lucia stars job you know melbourne stars job rcb um probably eventually led to the scotland job as well and all that sort of stuff whereas now my analysis is way higher but it's probably read by a fraction of the amount of people and i don't get as many job um, offers as i used to so you know right place right time you can be really really good at this and and just not be uh in the right area but you know for me it's still i i took it as a writing challenge being an analyst because that's what i do i write so when we did when i worked for st lucia I think this is right. I think I've got between 50 and 70,000 words of written down from that series that probably one day I'll turn into a book when, you know, the people involved will no longer sue me. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I got to, you know, that, that, that whole thing for me is a writing project and a, and a man management project and a director project and all that sort of stuff. Um, the analysis is just cause I, you know, I've grown up in cricket and understand it on a different level than some other people do. Um, but the, everything else is still, it still comes down to, you know, you have to give information to people in a way that will help them. Um, you have to have, you know, you have to open dialogues with people in a way that makes them feel comfortable. You have to meet people on their level. That's no different than writing. Right. Yeah. And with sports, broadcasting and contracts let's not even get into bcci you know with with their contracts and and that being such a black box how challenging was making the documentary uh i see yeah. you interviewed n srinivasan who was a very controversial figure at the time so did you face a lot of you know pushbacks and challenges when you were shooting for it and it took like four yeah. years i'm it took four years. Yeah. Interviewing people wasn't hard, actually. I mean, it's in the movie. We call, we had, someone gave us Srini's number and we called him and he said yes. And we were like, that okay, easy. fine. I mean, getting his number is not easy, but the fact he just said yes. And we were in, let's say we were in Mumbai. Yeah, I think we were in Mumbai. And it was like literally, um, uh, okay, we now need to change our flights and go to um, Chennai because um, I think we were heading to Kolkata next. Yeah, I think I think we we're going to a, uh, a T20 game in Kolkata. That's right. You know, it was things like that were just utterly, utterly bizarre. So getting the interviews wasn't a problem. The rights issue is huge and how much they want to charge. And I won't bore you with how documentary films are made, but there are some countries that believe in fair usage, which is means you don't have to pay for the rights to the footage at all if you're showing it within context. And it's not like a a highlights movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, if, if we want to make it, you and I want to make a film about Sachin Tendulkar and it's like 80% of the film is Sachin Tendulkar playing cricket, you know, I think it would be fair for the BCCI, whichever cricket board, to go, wait a minute. That's not what we're talking about here. But fair, fair usage is a very, very, it, it, and it's uh, looked at very differently in India than it is in England and Australia and South Africa. So all these different markets we had to work out. Um, you know, and sports rights footage costs an absolute fortune. Quite often, they don't charge you that much for the footage. They Quite often, they charge you a lot for the good quality um, of getting an archivist to go and find the clips that you want. So that's why you see a lot of documentaries uh, having really dodgy clips that they've just taken from YouTube um and that's why because it's way cheaper um but yeah no i mean the pushback we got was you know the minute we interviewed giles clark i think giles clark realized that 
Well, weirdly, he didn't didn't realise during the interview, but he certainly realised after the interview that we were doing a story about him and Srinivasan. Even if we didn't really know it at that point, if we're being honest, it was really early on in the process. Then we interviewed Srini not long after that, and they obviously got together and had this conversation about us. Um, And that was when things got very weird. Uh, You know, they took our accreditation away. They tried to plant stories in the press um, about us. Um, You know, all these different things sort of happened. But yeah, it was... It, I remember I remember a person saying that because we had Ed Cowan in the film and it was Ed Cowan's debut and he was so excited to be there and we were going to be there chronicling his debut. You know, we've probably got still heaps of other footage we could put together to really show what it's That's like. That's a lovely part of the documentary. Yeah, but it's like six minutes of the documentary, right? We probably have five hours with Ed, right? That you could make it to a really, and you could get Ed to go back and look at that film and look at his career now it'd be really interesting but i remember one of the australian cricket media officer um oh god what's his name pope popey i think that was his name um he was saying to us that there's no way ed would have done that if he was 10 tests into his career and that was basically what we were told by the journalists right like if you look back on it if we had been we were both freelancers neither of us were working for anyone specifically we were still trying to make our name and so we took all these risks that just normal journalists would not. Stephen Brinkley from The Independent took Sam aside and said, what if this fails? Sam's like, I don't know, we'll try something else. It didn't even occur to those guys to take that chance, right? But we were like, we, we didn't feel like we were in the industry. So even when the threats started coming in and, you know, my accreditation, I remember walking into South Africa in 2013 for a test match and that something had gone wrong with my accreditation. And it hadn't been printed before I got there. And South African um, security standards were so bad at Centurion that I somehow got all the way into the ground, uh, the members, and then the um, media box without accreditation, right? Wow. It was just a random thing. I don't know how it happened, but I just kept walking through and going, someone's eventually going to stop me, right? And they never did. You know, most cricket grounds around the world, you would never be able to do that. The only other place I could think of that would allow that is maybe Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is one where sometimes you go, I can walk through any gate here. Why are people buying tickets? Maybe Gaul, um, right? Gaul. No, some of the, I have seen it at Gaul, but there are heaps of grounds in Sri Lanka I've seen that happen. Um, and, and so I'm in the press box. And so I walk in and suddenly there's an executive from Cricket South Africa who sees my face and goes, oh, Jared Kimber, what are you doing here? And I was like, that's a weird response. I've never met this person before. And I was like, I'm here to commentate for the radio. And they went, is that all? And it suddenly dawned on me that they were terrified that I was about. And so there was certainly that sort of stuff had gone on and would, had been spread around a little bit by that point. Um, but yeah, no, it wasn't. Um, it, it wasn't. Uh, it was a weird time. We probably didn't know what we were doing to such a degree that. It's almost if if we'd known even slightly more about how the system works and how people were talking about us behind our backs, I think we really would have changed how we did everything. But we didn't know that. And it was only later that we started to find that out. There are still people now that like I will occasionally email someone and they'll be like, as if we would, you know, get you involved after the film. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know you knew who I was. Well, it's lovely that you know who I am and you still hate me and have a great day. Um, so I do think that, you know, those sorts of things, uh, have had an impact but because we didn't know what we were doing and we didn't realize how the world worked we just kind of made the film and you know then it came out and then you know then we went our own separate ways and 
you know, I'm still here. So the people who said that I ruined my career in cricket, sadly have not. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I asked about accessibility is I, I hear the great cricketer uh, guys say that it's so difficult to get access to uh, cricketers, especially, especially Indian cricketers. I'm not too sure about... Indian cricketers are by far the hardest to get to. It's not just... A, the BCCI won't help you at all. Um, I used to have friends at the BCCI. They would give me phone numbers, but that was but they would do that because they knew me, not because of anything else. Um, Cricket Australia used to be terrible with their players as well. Um, ECB, um, Cricket Australia, Cricket South Africa, uh, New Zealand cricket, Pakistan's still a little bit difficult, but all those others got really good. There was a, there was a wave of, and I don't blame the individuals now, but there was certainly a wave of media officers who believed their job was stopping you getting to a player, right? And they were all replaced by, I would say, the best crop of media managers we've ever had in cricket who understood both sides, right? And, you know, they wanted to protect their players, but they also understood that this guy's a journalist and if we don't get him, you know, he needs to pay his wage, whatever, and he's going to be promoting the game and this is why he's doing this piece, all these sorts of things. Uh, and it became a lot different. But, yeah, the Indian players are, I've never had a, I've never had a, BCCI contract. No, I've had Shikapande is the only BCCI contractor player that I've ever interviewed on my podcast. And I don't think I've ever had an Indian player. Oh, Raul Drava would be the only other one who I worked with at ESPN. It's so rare for them to feel comfortable talking, especially to someone like me, and then to be able to do it. But then you have to go through the hoops. But you know, the problem with India is you're not just going through the BCCI. You're going through the BCCI. You're going through the player's agent. You're going through the player's manager. Sometimes you're going through the player's wife or girlfriend. There's so many layers of people that you have to deal with, you know, to get to any of those things. Um, and I do think from that perspective that it just is... It, it, people just don't try that much, right? And then to get to them, you quite often have to suck up right? Which is fine if that if you're just running puff piece interviews. But for most of us, it doesn't really work to just have Rohit Sharma not say anything, right? We need to have a real interview here. That's what people want to hear. Um, and so, yeah, it is very tough. It, it's got a lot easier to talk to cricketers around the world in the last couple of years. It used to be really easy, of course. Um, but things did change quite a bit. But yeah, no, India is certainly still one that... Uh, look, the, the BCCI is absolutely terrible at looking after their fans and looking after their media. If, you know, if they weren't in the best media market on earth, they would be fucking broke, right? Because they are absolutely terrible at almost everything else they do. Yeah, you know, I hear about how... the World Cup how IPL fans are treated in, in stadiums yeah. at, at the Wankhede, day at, you know, the other stadiums, they don't have, they don't have basic facilities for IPL. Fans. I, I told this story the other day. I, I turned up about, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour before an IPL game once. And I missed the start because it took them that long to get everyone in the ground. Right. Cause they only had a couple of gates open at Chinnaswamy. It's ridiculous. Right. Have you been to Dharamshala? And, yeah. Getting to that ground is, is, is a nightmare. Well, getting to that ground is the bigger problem. Once you're there, you can usually get in. But, but you know, uh, you know, um, you know, media people, I think there's one ground, I think it's Kolkata, where you have to go through about four levels of security to get in. And then when you do that, you have the last level of security as a journalist. It might have changed. I haven't been back there maybe since the World Cup final. I can't remember. But you used to have to open your laptop up and your iPads up and, and turn their batteries on. Right. So make sure that they could see that it was a working laptop. 
and you're like, I have been, I've gone through five levels of security and you now they've gone through every part of my bag and I now have to get out all my stuff. Right. And then to, it was just like, you can just imagine. And if that's what they're doing to media, you just keep factoring it down and you hear the stories of what happens to fans and it's not good enough. And I don't think the BCCI treat cricket particularly well. Um, I just happen to think that they're in it, you know, and you can go back to English cricket. English cricket did a very, very similar thing. And eventually England cricket wasn't as big as it used to be, right? You have to look after the people who want to pay for your product. And I don't think that, or in this case, pay and promote your product. And in this case, I don't think the BCCI do either. I think it's just sheer numbers that's keeping it. Yeah. Going. It's ridiculous numbers, right? And But but if you don't look after something, it's eventually there's gonna... already a whole generation of middle middle class Indians who are going into, who go who prefer football, right? Basketball will be the next one. You don't want to, you don't want to be in a situation where you're fighting the NBA and Premier League football. They're much smarter than the BCCR. Yeah, I mean, I can see the change already, you know, with, with the ISL, with, English Premier League being so big in India. I, I can already see that. Do you have any cricket broadcast heroes that you really looked up looked up to or really inspired your writing? Uh yeah, I mean I think I I listened to a lot of cricket radio when I was a kid. Probably not a mistake that I've ended up as a you know radio commentator. Um and, you know, and for me I think, you know, uh, Tim Lane was probably, you know, the commentator that I most enjoyed listening to. He's not very famous in cricket, partly because he never did World Cups and, and Ashes, because um, he was quite often, he would be doing footy season in Australia. But for six months of the year, he was the god of cricket commentary. Uh, so he certainly was someone who I looked up to. And also Peter Roebuck. I, you know, I know Peter Roebuck now is a controversial figure and quite rightly a controversial figure with everything that we now know about what he did off the field. But the way that he thought about the game, you know, it, and, and let's his articles. I did read his articles, but let's his articles, but more, you know, listening to him on commentary, you really got the idea that this was someone who was challenging everything he knew about cricket at all times. And he got some things massively wrong. You know, there's the, the he's a big proponent. He wasn't the main reason this happened, but he's a big proponent in the whole thing of uh, West Indians are all playing basketball now. And that's why they have no fast bowlers, uh, which, it's been thoroughly debunked by me and, and Michelle St. Patrick. And, it's a common narrative. Um, you know, Even I thought the same, but yeah, everyone thought it. And, 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 and Roebuck, you know, was a reason it, cause that it, if you follow the narrative back far enough, you realize it actually starts in the West Indies. It's not white journalists who get blamed for this or, or sorry. It's not white journalists who did it. Although it was white journalists who got blamed for it. And I understand why, cause they were the ones who spread it, but it's definitely, we found occasions of it happening in the West. We heard, you know, Michael Holding talking about it well before Roebuck ever wrote about it. Um, but the way that, but, but even in that, in looking for answers, right. And looking for things, if you follow Roebuck's career, there was a lot of that. And I think it, you know, it followed the way that myself and my friends, you know, we all grew up, we were obsessed by cricket. We we're obsessed by Aussie rules football. We we're obsessed by basketball. Um, and we had the conversations that I had, that I now put into my work now, right. You know. I remember at 3 a.m. in a hotel, uh, in, in a hostel in, I want to say Chicago, you know, having a fight with my friend to the point where everyone else in the hostel room said, shut the fuck up and go to sleep. Because we were fighting about what Adam Gilchrist's final average would end up being, right? My friend was saying 40. And I was saying, it's impossible for it to be 40 because he's averaging like 50 
52 or 55 or whatever it was at that time. And I said he would have to average like 25 for a long period of time. He'd just be dropped before that. But we would have those sorts of conversations. And I think Roebuck, if you go back to his radio commentary specifically, was very good at having those sorts of conversations. I remember, you know, there's a really, there was one thing where he was on and it was actually Gilchrist again, where Gilchrist was like in the second year of his career. And, um, Someone said to Roebuck, would you say that Gilchrist is one of the best batters in the world? And Roebuck's like, wait a minute. You've got Lara and War and Tendilka and Dravid and all these guys who've been doing good things for three, four, five, sometimes 10 years, 15 years. You can't compare a guy who's been playing for a year and a half and is basically not played anywhere. And it's that sort of th thinking that really probably changed the way that i looked at things from that, that point onwards like the fact i remember that little bit of commentary i think is a very it was obviously a very formative thing to the way that i thought about sports any five batsmen who have inspired your writing i i think i think traditionally probably well traditionally is the wrong way of putting it but you know verinder sewag and and brendan mccullum in the way that they batted so differently to everyone else allowed for my and, and gilchrist probably as well although i missed most of gilchrist's career by the time i started but gilchrist would have been the same in that you know i think i naturally like people who are very different who are you know it, and it doesn't matter if it's craig brathwaite who i'm also obsessed with right it's people who are doing things very very differently to everyone else usually fascinate me the most and i think that sort of you know afridi you can put him in there as well but that afridi sewag mccullum type thing of where you have to watch every single ball of their innings you don't have to watch every single ball of a joe root innings right like as brilliant as joe root is and and same with sachin you don't have to watch every single ball of sachin you kind of did with those other guys and i think that you know from that perspective they had a huge impact on me and then if you look historically obviously victor trumper is someone who's really really interesting in that probably plays the game 70 years ahead of his time you know and to have someone who was that incredible and for no one else to be able to copy it is a fascinating way of of, of going about it and then also didn't have a very good batting average right so you have a player who the more we look back on it the more we realize how special victor trumper was but for a long period of time he was just a guy who averaged around 40 in test cricket right and we you know, for, I think there were whole generations where we're like, why are we even still talking about this guy? And then you start to peel the layers back and you're like, oh, now I understand why. Yeah, he was the OG baseball. Yeah, he, he one-man baseball. One-man baseball, yeah. Uh, this is probably a perfect way to end the podcast. Uh, what are your picks for the 2023 World Cup for India and Australia? Let's just keep to these two sides for now. Uh, when, when you mean my picks, you mean... Uh, 11 oh I, I couldn't tell you that uh, i so stuff like that i find those questions impossible to answer because if you want me to answer it properly the amount of research i would have to put in to actually come up with that and then when i did what, what i would come up with would be a team that neither side will even have a squad to be able to put out on the field okay right? maybe because... let's stick to number four the indian number four who do you think the best pick would be given the given what you've seen with players and let's not put KL Rahul and Shreya Sayer in there because they're injured. So, but from the current yeah, KL Rahul would probably almost be my pick. I think he's a very underrated number four, number five type player. Um, in T20 cricket, I have lots of issues with the way he plays, but in one day cricket, I think he's a lot better. Um, I suppose is Vishal Pant still going to be injured too, isn't he? Because I would like uh, him at number four. Yeah, he is. I think still fifty-fifty. 
I thought he would yeah. say Tilak Varma, but yeah. No, I mean, I don't know if I see him as a number four, uh, although perhaps he is. Um, yeah, I, I think, I, I think probably, I wonder if the ideal number four wouldn't be Rohit Sharma. And I know that he's now made his way in other positions, but I think the sort of, sort of player he is now, his ability to, if you, if you think about what you want a number four to do, right, you essentially want them to be able to score at around five, five and a half runs and over. Right, you, more ideally slightly quicker than that, but outside of England, no one seems to be able to do that. But let's say he scores at five and a half runs and over, not going to take any big risks against the spinners unless everything's in his favour. And then he's going to be on, you would hope, eighty off ninety balls when the fastballers come back on at the end, and he can start hitting the ball everywhere. Which is kind of why I like Kale Rahul in that position as well. Um, Tilo Varma is, <clears throat> look, I think. England did this research years ago, and I think if you go through all professional sports, you'll see for all of our obsession with younger players at the very top end, you know, let's say you, you put Barmer in or uh, who else have they got that could bat at number four? He's another younger player, um, Ishan Kishan, right? Just throw a random name out. If one of those guys bats at number four, there is a huge gulf, chasm between them playing for India, let's say they played for India 20 or 30 times by the time that World Cup's gone on. And the fact that when they get to the most important games, they're going to have to be facing Shaheen, Shadab, Bolt, Saudi, uh, Stark, uh, Rabada, Nokia, you know, Shamsi, all these sorts of guys, right? And Everyone wants the young player to go in because the young players are the most exciting. And occasionally you see an Inzamam al Haq, like the 92 World Cup, you know, be really, really important. But if you go through the history of World Cups, they've usually been won by very, very mature players who've seen it all and therefore can handle any situation that is thrown in front of them. And there are, I think there are cases where you could argue 92, maybe not 92 World Cup, but, you know, that sort of early 90s, Australia probably should have picked more of the younger players just because the younger players were obviously much better. And uh, 2015 is not the maybe most famous example of England having a better team on the bench than they did in, in, the, in the 11. Um, and I'm sure that has happened before. And maybe that is happening with India now. I don't know. But generally, the truth is that if you, if it's the 35th over and your team is five for 173, and Mitchell Stark's coming on to bowl reverse swing. Do you want a player who has faced Mitchell Stark bowling reverse swing at that stage before? Or do you want a young kid in? And I think the reason that these things are won by these players is more often than not, as long as the talent level isn't massively different, that you do want the player who actually understands how to handle that situation. And I, I've always thought that, and I'm thinking more and more, is that World Cups are about problem solving right and it's very hard for kids to uh problem solve when they haven't even gone through that much right they haven't played that much cricket they haven't played at the top level all that much it's very hard to problem solve there it's very easy to problem solve when you're like marcus doinus and, and, and matthew wade right and i would say the australia might have had better players than them in the 20 was it 2022 world cup we have had so right? many world cups i can't even remember <laughs> Yeah, so I, I would have thought that those two guys, maybe Australia could have found better actual batters for T20 cricket in that role at that time than those two players. 
But Marcus Stoinis and Matthew Wade had played for generations and they played a lot of white ball cricket. They'd played franchise cricket. They'd played IPL cricket, right? They played all those things. So when they're facing Shaheen Afridi and who, I can't remember who, Harris Ralph or whoever the other fast balls were in that game for Pakistan, they've faced 90 miles an hour before. They've come back from behind in games before, right? And they know what they're doing. That's very, very different situation than if Australia had Josh Philippi and Ashton Turner out there, right? And you might argue that Josh Philippi is a might end up being a better white ball player than Matthew Wade. And you might argue that Ashton Turner is has more is a more consistent hitter of the ball than Marcus Stoinis. Um what you may not, you know, Mitch, you know, whoever it may have been, Cameron Green, they could, you know, although I think it was just before the Cameron Green experiment, but whoever it may be, right? You could argue all that, but what you can't argue is that in that situation, Marcus Stoinis and Matthew Wade made a series of good decisions and then they had a bit of fortune on their way there and they won the game. You have a look at Ben Stokes in the last World Cup final. It's very similar, right? Ben Stokes wasn't even bashing the ball everywhere, right? Ben Stokes just went, okay, this is what we need to get. Pakistan need to get wickets. I'm just going to eradicate wickets from my end, right? Again, he got luck. Shaheen gets injured taking that catch, right? You get that luck, but he put himself, his team in the best possible situation. And if you watch younger players, they don't often do that. They play to the best of their ability and and everything else. So that is why teams like older players, it's why Shakib Al-Hassan is, you know, captain of Bangladesh again, right? It, it's why these teams keep doing this thing. These aren't accidents. Um, and so from that perspective, I like the idea of that doesn't mean that you don't throw in a young player, maybe like to like Rama, who is so exciting and so transformative, you can throw them around, but you want a lot of good heads around them because that generally is what has won World Cups for teams. That's a very interesting point. Well, Jared, thank you so much for your time. I'm pretty sure this this conversation can go on for episodes and episodes, but really, really, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking to you. No worries. Thanks for having me on. That was the most amazing Jared Kimber on the show. I hope you guys really love the conversation. I'll be back with another guest next time. Till then, peace.